Good morning, everyone. It's uh, indeed a, a, a privilege and an honor to be here this morning uh, to preach God's word, and I, I pray that I faithfully preach his word to you this morning. Before I get started, though, uh, Steve wanted me to let you know that uh, the next book of the Bible we're going to go through verse by verse is 1 Corinthians, and uh, I think we'll all be blessed by that, just like we were blessed by finishing up Romans a couple weeks ago. Speaking of the Word of God, one word, reconcile, is one of the most significant and descriptive terms in all of Scripture. It is one of the key words used in the New Testament to describe the richness of salvation in Christ, along with justification, redemption, forgiveness, and adoption. We actually heard of all of those terms in the song that we just sung. In justification, the sinner stands before God guilty and condemned, but is declared righteous. In redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave, but is granted his freedom. In forgiveness, the the sinner stands before God as a debtor, but the debt has been paid and forgotten. And in reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy, but become his friend, peace with God. And in adoption, the sinner stands before God as a stranger, but is made a son or daughter of God. What marvelous redemption that we have in our Christ Lord. We're declared righteous, we're granted our freedom, Our debt is paid and forgotten. We become his friend, and we become his sons and daughters. A complete understanding of the doctrine of salvation would involve a detailed look at each one of these terms. In Colossians 1, 20 through 23, Paul gives us a concise look at reconciliation, which is the term that we're going to study today. And if you turn your Bibles to 1 Colossians 1, 20 through 23, I'll read today's text to you. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been promised in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became the minister." The verb reconcile used uh, in the Bible is, or the word reconcile in general means to change or exchange. And the New Testament usage speaks of a change in relationship. In 1 Corinthians 7.11, it refers to a woman being reconciled to her husband. In the other two New Testament passages, which we'll look at later, Romans 5.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.18 through 20, it speaks of God and man being reconciled. When people change from being an enemy with God and each with each other and, and become to peace with each other, they are said to be reconciled. When the Bible speaks of reconciliation, then, it refers to the restoration of a right relationship between God and man. There's another term for reconcile, and that's used here in our passage today in Colossians 1.20 and uh, 22 is a compound word of, the, of reconcile with the base word reconcile with a preposition in front of it that intensifies the meeting. And what Paul is trying to communicate here to the Colossians, it means you are thoroughly, completely, and totally reconciled. Paul, no doubt, we use the stronger term in Colossians to counterattack the false teachers that were present in Colossians, in Coloss- Colossae. 
because they held that Christ was merely another emanating spirit of hundreds of spirits that God had spun out. Then they also denied the possibility of man being reconciled to God by Christ alone. In refuting that denial, Paul emphasizes that here is total, complete, and full reconciliation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Inasmuch as he possesses all the fullness of deity, Jesus is able to fully reconcile sinful men and women to God. Paul defends Christ's sufficiency to, to reconcile men to God by discussing four aspects of reconciliation. In these passages, we'll learn the plan of reconciliation, the means of reconciliation, the aim of reconciliation, and the evidence of reconciliation. So looking first at the plan of reconciliation, we get out of verses 20 and 21. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You know, in, in preparing for this message, you know, I always thought of reconciliation between God and man, but I never thought about creation in the universe and the earth also being reconciled to God. So God's ultimate plan for the universe is to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus Christ. When his work of creation was finished, what did we read in Genesis 1, 31? God saw that all that he had made, and, it, and behold, it was very good. God's good creation, however, was soon marred by man's sin. The fall resorted not only in the fatal and damning tragedy of the human race, for the human race, but also affected the entire creation. Sin destroyed the perfect harmony between creatures and between all creation and the creator. The creation was subjected to futility, and it groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, as Roman 8 tells us. One evidence of that is the second law of thermodynamics. I learned this in college in physics class, which indicates that the universe is losing its usable energy. It will eventually go cold and dark. If God did not intervene, the universe would eventually suffer, suffer a heat death. All of it, available energy would be used up. And as I said, the universe would become cold and dark. We live on a cursed earth in a cursed universe. Both are under the menacing influence of Satan, who is both the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we read, the God of this world has binded, blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The devastating effects of the curse and the satanic influence will reach its terrifying climax in the events of the tribulation that we read about in Revelation. Some of the various bold judgments, trumpet judgments, and sealed judgments are demonic. Others represent natural phenomena gone wild as God lets loose with his wrath. At the culmination of that time of destruction and chaos, Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. During his millennial reign, the effects of the curse will begin to be reversed. The Bible gives us a glimpse of what the restored creation will be like. There will be dramatic changes in the animal world. In Isaiah, we learn that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Their nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. An adder is a poisonous snake. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah eleven six through 9. The changes to the animal world will be parallel to changes in the earth in our solar system. In Isaiah 30, we read, Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. 
in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds of his inflicted, wounds inflicted by his bow. And in Isaiah 60, the sun shall be no more your light by day. For not for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. There will be tremendous, dramatic changes that will mark the reconciliation of the world to God. Paul writes that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of its corruption. God and the creation will be reconciled. The curse of Genesis 3 will be removed. We might say that God will make friends with the universe again. We, the universe will be restored to a proper relationship with the creator. Finally, after the millennial kingdom, there will indeed be a new heaven and a new earth, as both Peter and John tell us. In 2 Peter 3, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, as John wrote in Revelation 21.1. The Lord will make everything new. Some have imagined that all things in this passage includes fallen men and fallen angels, and so do on that basis have argued for universalism, the ultimate salvation of everyone. So doing, they overlook a fundamental rule of interpretation. The principle that teaches no passage of Scripture interpreted properly will contradict any other passage in Scripture. When we let Scripture interpret Scripture, it is clear that by all things, Paul means all things for whom reconciliation is possible. That fallen angels and unregenerate men will spend eternity in hell is the emphatic teaching of Scripture. Our Lord will one day say to the unbelievers, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared, prepared for the devils and his angels, for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment. The Lord taught that in Matthew 25. In Revelations 20, 10 through 15, the Apostle John writes, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, and each one of them according to what they had done. The de then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was also thrown into the lake of fire. That's pretty emphatic, that the devil and the, his demons, an unregenerate man, will not have Eternally, eternity with God in heaven. On the other hand, there is a sense in which fallen angels and unredeemed men will be reconciled to God for judgment, but only in the sense of submitting to him for final sentencing. Their relationship to him will change from that of enemies to that of the judged. They will be sentenced to hell, unable to any longer to pollute God's creation. They will be stripped of their power and forced to bow in submission to God. Paul writes in Colossians 2.15 that after Christ, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Because of Christ's victory, as Romans tells us, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, as Philippians 2.10 tells us. Though in the sacrifice of Christ, God made provisions for the world, all persons will not be reconciled to God in the saving sense of being redeemed. The benefits of Christ's atonement are applied only to the elect who alone came to saving faith in him. From God's general plan to reconcile all things to himself, Paul turns to the specific reconciliation of believers like the Colossians. That they had been reconciled was evidence enough that Christ was sufficient to reconcile men and women to God. Their reconciliation foreshadowed the ultimate reconciliation of the universe. To impress on them Christ's power to reconcile men to God, Paul reminds the Colossians of what they were like before reconciliation. They were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Alienated means estranged or cut off or separated. Before their reconciliation, the Colossians were completely estranged and cut off from God. In a similar passage in Ephesians, Paul writes, You are at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, who you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Non-Christians are detached from God because of sin. There is no such thing as an innocent heathen, for we have all sinned. All unbelievers suffer separation from God unless they receive the reconciliation provided in Jesus Christ. The Colossians had also been hostile in mind. Hostile could also be translated hateful. Unbelievers are not only alienated from God by condition, but also hateful to God by attitude. They hate him and resent his holy standards and commands because they are engaged in evil deeds. Scripture teaches that unbelievers love the darkness rather than the light because their work, works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. John three nineteen and 20. Their problem is not ignorance, but willful love of sin. Sin is the root cause of man's alienation from God. Because God cannot fellowship with sin, it is sin that needs to be dealt with before God and man can be reconciled. The question arises as to whether man is reconciled to God or God to man. There is a sense in which both occur. Since the mind set of the flesh is hostile toward God and those who are in the flesh cannot please God, reconciliation cannot take place until man is transformed. So in 2 Corinthians 5.17 we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. There is also God's side to reconciliation. From his holy perspective, his just wrath against sin must be appeased. Far from being the harmless, tolerant grandfather that many today imagine him to be, God takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Nahum 1-2. Jeremiah 10.10 tells us, At his wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. John 3.36, The one who refuses to obey the Son will find the wrath of God abides in him. And in Ephesians 5.6, Because of the unbeliever's sin, the wrath of God remains on him. Man and God could never be reconciled unless God's wrath is appeased. The provision for that took place through Christ's sacrifice. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. It is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
He bore the full fury of God's wrath against our sins. After all, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 Christ's death on the cross reconciled us to God, something we could never have done on our own. In Romans 5, 6 through 11, Paul gives four reasons why we cannot save ourselves. And I think we should turn there and uh, you should look at this text, Romans 5, 6, as I read through this. So we learn the four reasons why we cannot save ourselves. Romans 5, uh, verse 6. For why we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For why we were still weak, At the right time, God died for the ungodly. Verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, the four things that we learn from that passage. In verse 6, we have no strength to save ourselves because we were still sick. Also in verse 6, we had no merit to stand before God. We were ungodly. Third, we have no righteousness. We lack righteousness. We were still sinners in verse 8. And in verse 10, we lacked peace with God. We were enemies with God. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God. God had to reconcile us. We can't save ourselves. We have no strength. We have no merit. We have no righteousness. We have no peace with God. It is only through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ that anyone can receive reconciliation, as noted in verse 11. So that brings us to the second point in the outline, the means of reconciliation, which we read about in Colossians 1.20b and 122a having made peace through the blood of his cross. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. These two phrases sum up the specific means whereby Christ effected our reconciliation with God. Paul says first that Christ made peace between God and man through the blood of his cross. Blood speaks metaphorically of his atonement. It connects Christ's death with the Old Testament sacrificial system. It is also a term that graphically notes a violent death, such as that suffered by the sacrificial animals. The countless thousands of animals sacrificed under the Old Covenant pointed ahead to the violent, blood-shedding death and the final sacrificial lamb would suffer. In Hebrews 13, we read, The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. The reference to Christ's blood again stresses the link between the violent death and the violent deaths of the animals sacrificed under the old covenant. Unlike many of them, however, Jesus did not bleed to death. No man took his life. He was not a helpless victim but willingly offered up his life to God to appease that wrath for us. John ten seventeen. For this reason, the Father loves me, this is Jesus speaking, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus chose the moment of his death. 
When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He did not bleed to death. After that, what did the Roman soldier do? Spear in the side and what came out? He's dead, right? Blood and water came out. He, he did not bleed to death. There is nothing mystical about the blood of Christ. It saves us only in the sense that his death was the sacrificial death of the final lamb. It was the death that reconciled us to God, as we read in Romans 5.10. Christ not only died as a sacrifice, but also as our substitute. Colossians 1.22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In Romans 8.3, Paul tells us that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He took the place of sinners, dying a substitutionary death that paid the full penalty for the sin of all who believe. The death satisfied God's wrath. Once again, Paul hammers away at the false teaching of the Colossian heretics that Christ was a mere being. On the contrary, Paul insists he died as a man for men. Were that not true, there would not be any reconciliation for any person. The means of reconciliation is the sacrificial death of Christ. The aim of reconciliation, Colossians 1.22b, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. God's ultimate goal in reconciliation is to present his elect holy and pure before him. Paul expressed a similar desire to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Jude tells us that we will one day stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Such purification is necessary if sinners are to stand in the presence of a holy God. Holy means to be separated from sin and set apart to God. It has to do with the believer's relationship with God. As a result of a faith union with Jesus Christ, God sees Christians as holy as his son. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In Ephesians 1.4. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Blameless means without blemish. It was used in the Septuagint to speak of, a sacrifice of the sacrificial animals. It used the New Testament to refer to Christ as the spotless lamb of God. In reference to ourself, reconciliation gives us a blameless character. Beyond reproach goes beyond Blameless. It means not only that we are without blemish, but also that no one can bring a charge against us. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, cannot make a charge stick against those whom Christ has reconciled. Christ's reconciliation makes believers holy, blameless, and beyond reproach before him. God sees us now as he will see us in heaven when we are glorified. He views us clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. The process of spiritual growth involves becoming in practice what we are in reality before God. We have put on the new self and that that new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, Colossians 3.10. The Christian life involves beholding the glory of the Lord, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18. So the aim of reconciliation is to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The evidence of reconciliation. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, 
which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. One of the most sobering truths in the Bible, and to me one of the scariest passages, is not that all who profess to be Christians, in fact, are saved. Matthew seven twenty two, and our, our Lord warned, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Of all the marks of genuine Christian, of a genuine Christian presented in Scripture, none is more significant than the one that Paul mentions here. People give evidence of being truly reconciled when they continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. The Bible repeatedly testifies that those who are truly reconciled will continue in the faith. In the parable of the soils, Jesus described those represented by the rocky soil as the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. By falling away, they give evidence that they were never truly saved. In John 8, 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. John, speaking through the apostates in 1 John two nineteen, They, the apostates, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain they are not all of us. After hearing a very difficult passage or difficult message from our Lord that it was a challenging teaching from him, many of Jesus' so-called disciples in, in John 6, 66, after they heard his message, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They didn't like what he had to say. By so doing, they gave evidence that they had never truly been his disciples. Perseverance is the hallmark of a true saint. Let there, lest there be any confusion about what they were to continue in, Paul specifies the content of their faith the, as the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. The Colossians are to hold fast to the apostolic gospel that they had heard. The gospel that had been proclaimed throughout the world. The gospel of which Paul was a minister and commissioned to preach. Those who, like the false teachers of the Colossians that preach any other gospel, stand cursed before God, as Paul taught us in Galatians. Perhaps no passage stresses the vital importance of reconciliation more than 2 Corinthians 5. And I want to ask you to turn there as well. 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is considered the most theological passage of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, for that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is a powerful text that we can discern five truths about reconciliation. First, reconciliation transforms men in verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In verse 21, it appeases God's wrath. 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A couple weeks ago, Steve asked us to memorize that passage. I'm going to ask you to memorize it too, because it is the heart of the heart of the gospel. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that with so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The third, it comes through Christ in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. In verse 19, it is available to all who believe in Christ God was in Christ God was reconciled in the world to himself. Finally, every believer has been given the ministry of proclaiming the message of reconciliation. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, verse 18, and entrusting that message of reconciliation to us in verse 19. God is entrusting that to us. So how do we respond to this teaching? Today's church is confronted by a seemingly endless variety of ministry methods, strategies, and styles. Some argue that the church should agitate for social and political change to force cultural morality or even help usher in the kingdom. Others insist that the church message should be inoffensive, upbeat, and affirming to create a positive atmosphere in which non-believers can feel welcome and not threatened. But they watered down the gospel. Still others believe their church's primary task is to defend its theological distinctives. But there is no confusion in Scripture about what the church's mission is to be, which Steve's been teaching us the last few weeks, evangelism. This definitive passage clearly articulates the heart and the soul of the church's responsibility as it represents Jesus Christ in the world. God has called all believers to proclaim the message of reconciliation, a term which appears in some five times in three of these verses, 18, 19, and 20. The glorious good news of the gospel is that the sin-devastated relationship between lost sinners and the holy God can be restored. That, at first glance, seems impossible. And to fallen man, the reason it seems impossible is they cannot conceive of a God that would reconcile. All invented religions by man has it the other way around. Human achievement, we have to work to somehow appease God. Human achievement versus divine accomplishment. God did the work to save us. So they think it's impossible. God's perfect, infinite, righteous justice demands the punishment of all who violates his law. Standing before the bar of his justice are helpless, guilty sinners, unable either to satisfy God or to change their condition. But through God's plan of reconciliation, all the hostility, animosity, and alienation separating the Holy One and sinners vanishes. And those who were once his enemies become his friends. The high calling and noble privilege of preaching this message of reconciliation is the most important duty in the world. Since it deals with eternal destinations. So what does the ministry of reconciliation look like? All we have to do is look to Paul. The gospel of reconciliation was the heart of Paul's preaching. To the Romans, he wrote in Romans 1, 15, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul also expressed his burning desire of his heart to preach the message of reconciliation in his first inspired letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 1.17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words, of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. In Ephesians 3.8, he expressed the wonders that to him, Paul, he's referring to himself, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach 
to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. His burning passion was to reach the world. Paul never lost his focus on this simple, straightforward message that sinners can be reconciled to God through the cross of Christ. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. In the most, this most theological section of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul gives us the comprehensive statement of how God has made reconciliation possible. God sends his people forth as ambassadors into a fallen, lost world, bearing unbelievable good news. People everywhere are hopelessly lost and doomed and cut off from God by sin. But God has proved, provided the means of reconciliation through the death of his son. Our mission is to plead with people to receive that reconciliation before it is too late. Paul's attitude is expressed in verse 20, should mark every Christian. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the last point in the outline, reconciliation is by the obedience of faith. While it is true, as noted above, that God alone is the reconciler, Reconciliation, nevertheless, does not happen apart from the sinner's faith. Therefore, Paul wrote, we are ambassadors in Christ, for Christ, in Ephesians 6.20. As in our day, being an ambassador in ancient times was an important and highly regarded duty. Ambassadors is a form of the verb which derives from old man. The term is an apt one for ambassadors in ancient times who were usually, who were usually older experienced men. An ambassador is both a messenger for and a representative of the one who sent him. And, a believer, and believers are messengers and representatives of the court of heaven. And just as ambassadors live in a foreign land, so also we do as believers. Though citizens of heaven, they represent their king in this world where we live as aliens and strangers. We proclaim to the lost, perishing rebels of this fallen world, the good news that they can be reconciled to the holy king of heaven. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, as Romans 10.13 tells us. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You are beautiful in God's eyes when you are preaching the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Because believers as believers, as his ambassadors, and as though God, the Savior of the Father, were making an appeal to the lost through us. We beg, we implore unbelievers, also on behalf of the Savior, Son, Christ, to be reconciled to God. This begging of people to be reconciled makes it clear that the sinner is never delivered from the wrath and judgment of blessing and reward without personal response to the truth of the gospel through the means God has provided, faith. In John 6, 47, Jesus said, He who believes has eternal life. God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus because a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, as we learned as we went through Romans. In a passage demonstrating that Abraham was justified by faith alone, Paul wrote, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It is those who have been justified by faith who have peace with God. The, to the Galatians, under the assault by the legalistic heretics, salvation by works, Paul wrote, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. Paul wrote to the Philippians that his hope of salvation in Christ was not based on having a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but that which is through the faith in Christ. The righteousness will come from God on the basis of faith. The objective element of saving faith involves believing that Jesus is God. That God raised him from the dead. That there is salvation in no one else. And confessing him as Lord. But there is often an overlooked subjective element to saving faith. A humble attitude of mourning over sin. Repentance and pleading with God for mercy. In James 4, 8 we read, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Paul saw his mission as Christ's ambassador, as ambas- his mission and as Christ's ambassador as one. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Romans 1.5. The Lord Jesus Christ assigned that same mission to all believers when he commanded them, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and in the Holy Spirit. There is therefore no higher calling, no greater privilege, no more urgent task than a ministry of reconciliation, God entrusted to all believers. I want to close by reading 2 Corinthians 4 to you to see how Paul felt about being a minister of reconciliation. We should all have the same heart that Paul had to reach the world. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have encouraged, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when we preach the message of reconciliation, not everybody will accept it, obviously. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not of us. Jump down to verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us all with Jesus and bring us with you to his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary infliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we work not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I pray that we all have that same heart as we preach the gospel. So here's my closing appeal. 
For those of you who have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I have two questions. This first question comes from a hymn we sang a few weeks ago. And on the screen, the, the words just popped out at me. And I said, wow, what a great question to ask an unbeliever. The hymn was, How Firm a Foundation, published in 1787. We actually don't know the author. John Rippon published it in a book of hymns. Uh, John Rippon was uh, the teacher in Charles Spurgeon Church before Charles Spurgeon for 63 years. And he published this book in 1787. And when we read that, in the first stanza, How Firm a Foundation, what more can he say that he has that to you he hath said? What more can he say than to you he hath said? What more can he say than to you he hath said? You might rephrase that question into a second question. What more can he do than what he has done? God is a compassionate God, wishing none to perish. God is a reconciling God, providing the path to peace through Jesus Christ. If you come to God on bended knee, confessing your sinner, your sin, you're a sinner, he will not cast you out. Make today your day of salvation. Do not presume on God's grace that you will be here tomorrow. Come to him before it is too late. Let's pray. Lord, we know reconciliation does not happen when we decide to stop rejecting you, but when you decide to stop rejecting us. It is your divine provision by which your holy displeasure against us alienated sinners is appeased, your hostility against us removed, and a harmonious relationship between you and us is established. Reconciliation occurs because you graciously and willingly designed a way to have all the sins of those, of those who are yours removed as far as the east is from the west where you've cast all our sins into the depths of the sea and cast all our sins behind your back. Lord, we know all sins will be paid for one way or the other. For the unbeliever, he, were, he or she will pay for their sins themselves, bearing the wrath of you forever in the eternity of hell, into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies, and with great weeping and gnashing of teeth. For the believers, his and her sins were paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross when he bore your full wrath and sacrificed his life for ours, exchanging his righteousness for our sins, pure and amazing grace, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. May we never cease to proclaim your gospel of peace, the ministry of reconciliation to your glory. It is the sole reason you have left us here on earth, that we may fulfill that mission as faithful ambassadors. And now in the words of Paul to the Philippians, and now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.